KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. The pandemic has taken a toll on the mental health of our kids, something we may have known intuitively. But now, nearly two years into it, there are studies that bear that out and quantify just how bad it is. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, the number of kids going to the ER for suspected attempted suicide has gone up significantly, especially for teenage girls who saw a 50% increase in early 2021 compared to 2019. And when CHOP looked at data from more than 300,000 of its patients, it found that positive screenings for depression and suicide risk both increased by about a percent. That's an increase of 3,000 kids. What's also become glaringly apparent is our lack of accessible and affordable mental health care. We're going to talk about all of this as well as how you can help your child through this and where you can get help with Dr. Tammy Benton. Dr. Benton is psychiatrist-in-chief at Children's Hospital and chair of the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Dr. Benton, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Depth. You know, there have been a number of studies done uh, looking into kids, teens, adolescents, younger children, and how they're doing, how their mental health is doing during this pandemic. Can you tell us what you're seeing, what you're discovering about that? Yes. Yeah, that's an excellent question, um, because this has been such a stressful time for young people and their families. And so what we saw, what we saw early in the pandemic was not a lot, you know, um, with the lockdowns, you know, kids and their families were staying at home. But maybe three or four months into the pandemic, we started to see increasing numbers of young people presenting to our emergency departments. Um, you know, we all rapidly switched to telehealth. So for, for young people who were already in treatment, we were able to continue to support them. But um, for young people who had never been in treatment, it was really, really challenging. So what we started to see was a, a lot of um, a lot of youngsters who had been fine before the pandemic um, coming into the emergency department seeking services. Um, for some of the young folks who were struggling with their own mental health challenges at the start of the pandemic, we started to see them coming to the emergency department much sicker with more depression, more anxiety. Um, lots of individuals with eating disorders were doing worse. More suicidal ideation, particularly among girls, was a significant change. And then we started to see younger children coming into the emergency department. So typically, the kids who were 5 to 11 were not the youngsters that we were seeing most of the time. It was usually the adolescents. We started to see more and more younger children coming in with their parents with fairly significant distress, some acting out behaviors, some more um, anxiety and depression as well. So it, it, the, the pandemic and the, all, of our, all of our public health measures to maintain safety significantly impacted children, adolescents, and their families. And I want to get to that in just a moment, the, the, the symptoms and what you were seeing. But I want to go back to something you just said, uh, because it ties into a study that took place at CHOP about kids seeking emergency help because of mental health crisis. And the numbers were really were really shocking. But th so the percentage of adolescents who screened positive for depression increased from five percent to six point two percent. That's from pre-pandemic to pandemic. And then positive suicide risk screenings increased 
from 6.1% to 7.1%. Now, if you look at the percentage, you think, okay, that doesn't seem like a huge increase. You're looking at basically a 1% increase in both of those, but that is pretty significant, isn't it, when you're looking at the the numbers? Yes, I, I agree. It is a pretty large number of children. A 1% increase is significant. Um, and we're talking about folks on screening. So those were not necessarily young people who were coming in complaining of crisis. Those were young people who may have not been manifesting any symptoms at home who were identified on screening. So that that is significant. So so those were the kids who were likely previously well, who were starting to have more troubles through the pandemic. So, yeah, I agree with you. Those shifts are not insignificant. You know, across the country, we're seeing close to 30% increases in the number of young people presenting to emergency departments seeking care. And we're seeing similar numbers at CHOP as well. So, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out ways to prevent children from ending up being hospitalized. One of the challenges that we faced at CHOP was for kids who were struggling with significant mental health problems, there was no place for us to provide the treatment. Many of the young people were ending up in the emergency departments, for prolonged period of, periods of time, or they were ending up in um, pediatric hospitals awaiting some more intensive psychiatric treatment. The challenge, you just, you just, I think, hit on that. The challenge, even for some parents who know that their kids needed help or need help, is being able to find a provider. There are so many obstacles to to get past. I mean, one, finding somebody who's still taking patients because the system has been overwhelmed. Two, then there are the insurance considerations. And if you don't have insurance, then there are cost considerations. I mean, the, the, the challenges here seem overwhelming. And what you're describing is how I think the system has um, experienced the influx of more young people. So you are 100% correct, Carol. We were we were not doing well prior to the pandemic, and the pandemic has just precipitated a crisis in mental health care. So the average wait to get a mental health appointment before the pandemic was about 50 days. And certainly, if you're if you have a, a mental health challenge. 50 days to receive your care is really unacceptable. Um, But since the pandemic, the volumes have increased and the number of providers have not. And so it's, it's really challenged us to have to think differently about how we reach out to patients. Telehealth has been very helpful um, in being able to reach more children and families, but, but you're correct. The system has been overwhelmed by the amount of need that we're experiencing right now. And this is a national crisis. Um, you, you may recall maybe a little over a month ago, Colorado Children's Hospital declared a, a state of emergency for mental health in their state. And they're, they're, they're not alone. So for the state of Colorado, there were 15 child psychiatrists per 100,000 young people. In Pennsylvania, there's only 25 child psychiatrists per 100,000 young people. And so it's been very difficult to find clinicians who are seeing patients. We've attempted to address that by partnering with our pediatric colleagues um, who are able to provide some of the lower acuity mental health support. Um, But even even the pediatricians are, are overwhelmed with the number of young people coming in with concerns. So you mentioned that the pre-pandemic wait period was 50 days. What is it now? 
Um, I, I, I'm not sure what the most recent numbers are, but, um, but many parents we've spoken with um, said they can't even get an appointment, so they're not even on a wait list. And so it's hard to know what the unmet need is right now. And a lot of those families are seeking their care in the emergency department. So what does, you know, we th- when we think of depression, we think traditionally of being sad. But when you look at depression, anxiety, particularly in kids, I think the signs can surprise people and parents. So can you tell us what should parents be on the lookout for? What, you know, what should kind of cause them concern to to think that, oh my gosh, my kid may be struggling? Yeah, that's a really excellent question, Carol. I think it's hard for people to know what's normal adolescent moodiness versus what is something that parents should be worried about. And You know, I just want to say that most teenagers make it through their adolescence intact um, with their relationships with their parents intact as well. But parents should be concerned if their moodiness um, or irritability um, or sadness becomes persistent and you see significant changes in their social and academic functioning. So when when young people start to withdraw from their friends, withdraw from their families, um, start to struggle academically when they were doing okay before, it's really, you know, what we identify as impairment is the criteria for a disorder. And impairment, you know, impairment refers to your lack of ability to function at the level that you were previously functioning. So parents should be concerned with they see those kind of changes. Any talk of suicidality, um, I know a lot of people think, oh, young people just say those things. No, actually, most young people don't just say those things. And if you have a young person who's saying, I don't want to be here anymore, um, I don't want to live, you know, I want to die, I want to harm myself, it's really important to pay attention to that and seek help immediately. You know, it, ideally, families should be able to get the care they need in their communities and hopefully will eventually get to that point. But if you're having um, an urgent situation where you're worried or you're not sure, make a phone call, make a phone call to a crisis line or make a phone call to your local emergency department or to your local pediatrician to have another source of support when thinking about what the next step should be. One interesting thing that I read that I don't think most parents think about, and that is you should ask, ask your child if they're thinking about suicide. And I think that feels like such a dangerous road to go down or, you know, I think people, parents may hesitate because they don't want to put that thought into their child's head, but actually it's, it's the opposite from what I read. Yeah, that that's true. And so people are very fearful if you ask children, even young children about suicide, because some young children do think about suicide. Um, Asking the question doesn't make them think about suicide. I mean, that's a worry, um, understandably. But the reality is that, you know, most young people who complete suicide have actually communicated with someone shortly before the time they make the attempt. Most have communicated with a mental health or medical provider prior to the suicide attempt. And they're not asked. Uh, They don't ask the children or the adolescents, are you thinking about killing yourself? And for young people not thinking about that, they find that question surprising. For the ones who are thinking about it, it gives them an opportunity to talk to another person about it. Um, and many times parents, you know, will ask children a question framed this way. You're not thinking about killing yourself, are you? Um, which sends a pretty clear message that the answer should be no. 
But I do think it's really important to ask. And sometimes just asking that question changes the course of the decision that that young person will make. Many times it's a a short-term distressing situation, but suicide's a long-term solution to a temporary situation. What other tips do you have about that tough conversation to have? So start off asking more of an open question that doesn't insinuate the answer should be no, but then how do you go from there? So most of the time, within the context of a conversation about how your child or adolescent's doing, you might actually ask that question, how are you doing? And share your observations. I've noticed I've noticed lately that you're not spending time with your friends. You don't come down for dinner. You know, you just don't seem to be interested in the things that you used to be interested in. Have you been feeling depressed or you've been feeling down? Um, and then I, you just ask the question pretty directly. Have you thought about not wanting to be here anymore or dying? You know, have you thought about killing yourself? And, you know, many times, you know, young people will answer yes and will tell you how they thought about doing it. And when they are able to tell you about their suicidal thinking, I mean, it's just asking suicide questions should be pretty direct and um, and then responding when the answer is yes. And, and every response doesn't have to be an over response. Right. So sometimes young people worry that if they say I've thought about killing myself, I'm not thinking about it right at this moment and I'm not going to do it at this moment. But the thought has crossed my mind. That doesn't mean that the young person automatically needs to be in the emergency department getting ready for psychiatric inpatient hospitalization. Okay, you know, if you're concerned about not knowing whether this is something that my young person is thinking about now, then I would I, I would call the crisis line or I would go to the emergency department. But sometimes, you know, it's a matter of getting that young person in to speak with someone who can help them address that problem. If you're not in in a crisis level where you would seek emergency room help, and we mentioned getting a therapist, you know, you some parents can even get on a waiting list. What other options are there? So there's the there's the crisis crisis line um, where you know young people can't actually make that phone call and talk to someone who can talk with them about potential resources. Um, even there, there are actually urgent appointments available at many locations. And then I actually would advise families, um, if you're really concerned, to contact your primary care physician. Your primary care provider has resources. So they'll see your child. Um, most of the primary care Um, clinicians are asking suicide questions um, and they're responding to them. And they have relationships with other mental health providers who might be able to see your child pretty quickly. Some some of the practices even have a therapist in the pediatric practice um, or in in the primary care practice. So starting with your pediatrician, that's much more comfortable for most families. Um, That's someone you can typically access right away. So for example, if, if you need to get in to see your pediatrician um, for a mental health related concern, typically you're able to see someone within 10 to 14 days versus 50 days to see a, a subspecialty provider. So the, the easiest place to start for families is to contact your primary care provider, or let them know about the problem, and they'll typically see your, your child or adolescent very quickly. How can parents help in the home environment? You mentioned some of the signs may be anger or your child doesn't want to come down for dinner. Are those things where you let it slide or do you insist that they need to come down and join the family? Do you you know, punish them if they're acting out and they're doing 
or saying things that are inappropriate? How do you handle that? I think it's really important to have conversations with your children and adolescents about the symptoms that you're seeing, because sometimes they're really beyond their control. So, you know, for young people who are acute, who are going through depression or acutely depressed, they just may not have the energy or the wherewithal to come out and join their families. And, you know, in those cases, young people need to receive treatment. Ideally, you know, you you want to identify those things early enough that you're not getting to the point of an emergency or any suicidal thinking. But having conversations about what's going on, working with a clinician to help guide you about, you know, how much should you push? So, for example, you know, when we treat depressed adolescents, one of the things that we use is behavioral activation. That is, getting. how do we help them move from, I don't want to do anything, to I need to be doing something a little more active or more engaged. And many times your therapist will have a plan for you or will work with you around what your youngster should be doing and how to partner with you around getting them to do those things. And so sometimes it's appropriate to say to them, look, you have to come down and join us for dinner. Punishing them is usually not helpful because people who are depressed tend to perceive things in a very negative way. And and then punishment, you you can only perceive in a negative way. And it just reinforces sometimes the the negative feelings young people have about themselves. But definitely, you know, partnering with a clinician will will help parents know how much they should push and when. So if you if you if you take for example an adolescent who is depressed, um, maybe six months ago they were they were very depressed, but maybe six months later they're not quite as depressed as they were before. And it's a little it's a little more um, productive to push them to do some of the things that they've negotiated with the family and with the therapist. I think that's hard. They're going back to what you were saying about trying to tease out if it's normal adolescent behavior or something to be concerned about. And I think that's where parents can run into trouble if they don't realize that their child may be depressed and their child is acting in an inappropriate way. It's hard, I think, maybe to to step back and try to figure out, well, wait a minute, is there something else going here on here? Particularly if on the surface, it just looks like they're being, you know, a teenager. Well, so that so the change in functioning is key. Okay. So you know it's important that that parents um, understand that major mood disorders or major mental health disorders are are um, changes from prior behavior. So that maybe your child was always a little bit moody, but when your child moves from a little bit moody to they're down all the time, they're staying in their room, they're not doing well at school, they're withdrawing from their friends. That's a that's a quantitative change. Um, and it's something that parents can recognize. It's the change in functioning that should be a, a red flag for parents that they need to explore a little bit more. And then parents may be super stressed themselves. And I think like if you're so stressed out as a parent, kind of having the wherewithal or that emotional bandwidth to to dig a little deeper into what may be going on with your child, particularly if it doesn't appear like classic depression or anxiety, it I think you can have just so much difficulty there on both ends. Well, you know, so Carol, you just hit on something else that's really important that, you know, this, this so much of what we're saying, particularly with young kids, really very much relate to parent stress. So this pandemic has, has really challenged us in ways that we've not been challenged before. So parents are the 
parents are the glue that holds, you know, the, the children's lives together. And when the parents are as stressed as they have been by this pandemic, it makes it harder for them to do that. And then the prolonged nature of this stress has been toxic for families. And so, you know, chronic stress is a normal part of life, but chronic stress leads to toxic stress and toxic stress really leads to depression. And so for all the families, we recognize that this prolonged pandemic has really tested them. And we're seeing that um, manifested in younger children coming in, talking about not wanting to be here anymore, or feeling that they're the cause for their parents to be unhappy. You know, what we're finding through this pandemic, parents have a lot of resilience. And some of the things that, you know, we found to be helpful is parents trying to maintain routines, no matter how stressed they are, trying to establish a sense of community, which was really hard during the lockdown and isolations, but finding other parents to provide some support, partnering with schools and working more closely with the teachers around how to support young people. But really, families really need communities right now. And as as much support as you can get to um, support stability, routine, um, other regular social functions for your kids. But it's important that families do that for themselves. And what we're, we're asking most parents uh, to spend some time thinking about engaging in um, family therapy with their child's therapist. So if your child is experiencing depression or severe anxiety, the treatment really isn't just for the young person. The family needs to be engaged in some education around what's actually happening with the young person. How do we how do we shift our interactions in the family so that we can all be more supportive? You know, informing parents around how they can support their children through the stressors that they're facing. You know, recognizing that we'll be facing some of these stressors for a long time. There's also parent support groups that are actually really, really, really helpful. And you can find those through some of your national organizations. And you can also find them through some of your local healthcare providers. Um, families, parents have told me that they have found the support groups really helpful, you know, talking with other people who are experiencing the same things. That loss of routine, there's been so much loss, but I realize as a parent, that threw me more. And my kids are teenagers, they're older, they're self, you know, they're really self-reliant. But I found that that kind of knocked me off my game too. You know, and I and I think that loss of routine, the loss of structure, and then that overwhelming desire as a parent when your child is telling you that they feel down or they they feel sad about something is that you want to try to help them. And I found that I ended up, it was hard. It was a hard switch to make saying, just acknowledging, you know what, that it's really tough. It, yeah, it's a sense of loss. And I understand why you feel, while you're feeling sad about it, um, was different than me trying to say, well, let's, let's try to make you feel better somehow. I, I went to just acknowledging it. And I think I noticed like my kids, I think that was important change to make. So what you just described is is exactly what you should be doing. So, you know, 
Part of the resilience um, that we try to tap into to support families is the ability to have conversations about experiences. And it's really important to validate the experience the young person is having. And, you know, the families who do the best are the ones who were able to have those kind of conversations before the pandemic started. They were able to model appropriate expression of their experiences and their feelings. And what you did is exactly what one should do. You didn't catastrophize the situation, but you, you acknowledge that this is really, really hard. And that, you know, and, you know, we're going to have to try to figure out some ways to get through this together. And I would encourage parents to do that. I mean, I'm not, it's, you know, it's not going to be helpful, you know, to be, to talk to your teenagers about how catastrophic it all is, but to be able to say, this is really hard and this is difficult and acknowledge the losses and be able to listen to those. And then to be able to remain engaged as a family in working together to address those things that are coming up. Yeah. And overriding that sometimes overwhelming parental urge (laughs) to just, you know, try to at least make things better for your child as opposed to just acknowledging that this really stinks and it's hard. So and 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 that is a normal parental instinct, and it's a good parental instinct. It's, It's the one that through these prolonged periods of stress allow us to maintain a sense of hope. And that that's really important. So, you know, the pandemic won't last forever. Um, but even if it did last forever, we would have to find some ways to be able to maintain some normalcy and consistency in our family lives despite that. And how do we tap into those things that, you know, strengthen us and support us um, and sort of keep us engaged and connected. And those are the things that will help us manage the stress related to this pandemic. Dr. Benton, I want to wrap up by touching on something that we talked about in the very beginning, and that is that it's become, as you called it, a national crisis, this mental health care, this dearth of mental health care. What? So the pandemic may not last forever, but this has really exposed a need. And what do you see? I mean, obviously more therapists, but what is the solution here? How how can we take care of our kids' mental health from here on out? So there's, that's a really excellent question. So right now, there's a lot of national focus on the crisis of children's mental health. And as you may be aware, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child Adolescent Psychiatry, and Children's Hospital Association um, just joined together in a national statement about the crisis in children's mental health care. There's also been a tremendous amount of um, congressional focus, um, bipartisan congressional focus and support for expanding the availability of mental health services by, you know, increasing support for training for clinicians, not just the psychiatrists or psychologists, but social workers and other community workers, Um, some loan repayment, because that's been a major issue for many professionals. They can't afford to um, accept the rates that are paid by insurance companies because they have loans to pay back. So loan repayment for all of those professionals would make a difference. Expanding access to community-based care. So many may not know that most young people actually receive their mental health services through schools, almost as many as who receive their care through subspecialty mental health clinics. And then we're trying to expand capacity in the primary care settings by placing therapists 
in those practices and psychiatrists so that the pediatricians can provide some of the lower acuity care, which by the way, is most of it. So most of the mental health struggles that young people are experiencing are fairly low acuity. And if you get to them early, they don't become high acuity. So expanding capacity um, in those communities, you know, by having children having and families with increased capacity to receive the right care at the right level, at the right time, in the right place, is really important. And then the other thing is there's been some focus on um, really allowing telehealth to remain. So as you may know, during the pandemic, telehealth, um, all the rules were sort of relaxed to allow greater expansion of telehealth. And for areas where there are a lot of clinicians compared with areas that are not we were able to expand capacity by reaching places that we were not able to reach before. We're asking that there is legislation to support our continued ability to do that. And then of course, you know, we're asking for parity, real parity for mental health payments. So families who pay for insurance should be able to get the same mental health care that as when they try to find their medical care. So all of those activities are, are in place now and receiving quite a bit um, of support from our legislators and from our citizens. And so I'm optimistic that we'll see some changes and expanded access. Um, and then also there's greater awareness, which is a, a big deal. Parents wouldn't seek care for their kids before. And now with the, with the mental health crisis, I think people are much more open to thinking about mental health as part of total health. Dr. Benton, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you or your child needs help, there are national hotlines that you can contact to talk to a crisis counselor. They run 24-7. The Suicide Prevention Hotline is 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-8255. You can text HOME to the crisis text line at 741-741. And for LGBTQ kids, there's the Trevor Project hotline, and that number is 866-488-7386. You can also find information at chop.edu and mentalhealth.gov.